Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women, like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the dough, where cash is queen and we hardly know her, but we're still here figuring her out together. Because y'all, season two is here, okay? Hosted every week by me, X Maya. Remember, I'm going to be talking to all types of people about their relationship to money. Reality stars, entrepreneurs, financial experts, and even some of my own friends. Basically, anyone who will get real with me about their dollars. How they make money, how they spend it, and how they save it. Because I'm trying to retire early, people. Season 2 of The Dough is out on March 21st, wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada. Welcome to The Bubble. This is Andy Slavitt. It's Wednesday, July 20. We've had a lot of really interesting shows recently about trying to get the government to work better for us. Mondays was a great example. Senator Chris Murphy, who for 10 years has been working on trying to get a gun reform bill passed, a bipartisan bill, finally did get passed. And he talked about that. If you haven't listened, it's a great listen to hear the inside story. But look, it is without question, whether you're thinking about the pandemic whether you're thinking about how we control inflation, whether you're thinking about guns, whether you're thinking about how to provide choice and protection and health for women in the face of the Dobbs ruling, that we rely on government. And uh, that's what this show is going to be a little bit about today. And I'll tell you that, like, as many people may know, I served uh, both in the Obama and the Biden administrations, is that it's very easy to grow frustrated with government. And oftentimes government deserves it. Um, it. You know, just we don't get the level of accountability. It feels very distant from us. There's all the kind of reason to be frustrated. At the same time, I will say that having served, it's very hard to describe to people what it's like, like what it inside feels like to work with the men and women in the federal and even in the state and local governments. They're incredible people. And the jobs they do every day, there's so much that gets done that we don't know about. There's also a lot of stuff that's really wrong. And my guest today, Adam Conover, was very interested in this topic. And he went to President Obama and his production company at Netflix, and they put together this special called The G Word. It's really interesting. I don't want to delay the conversation much longer because I think you'll really get a kick out of it and learn a lot. Adam's a comedian. He's got a YouTube presence, and it's a really interesting special. So let me bring him on. So we have Adam Conover for the show. I have to tell you that I'm a little bit nervous because Adam ruins everything. At least that's what I've heard. You're not you're not <laughs> planning to ruin the podcast, are you, Adam? Absolutely not. I, I mean, unless I, I don't know what your criteria would be for the podcast to be ruined. 
I don't know what you treasure about it particularly, so I don't know if, you know, I might stumble across something. I might ruin it for you on without even realizing it, but it's certainly not my intention to come in here and ruin anything for you today. Listeners would probably say it's a low bar. It's probably very close to ruin many days anyway. So, um, <laughs> so you are... I have a very interesting, exciting new project, which I want to tell everybody about. If they don't know about it, I talked a little bit about it when I was introducing you. The show called The G Word. And it's funny because, well, it's already funny because, like, government is such a bad word that you have to say the G word. Like, you can't even mm-hmm. say the word government. Thank you. That is the premise of the title. And I'm so glad that it came across. I was worried people would think it was about something else. But, yeah, no, it is. Uh, yeah, that's that. that is the premise of the show that... We don't like to think about the government or even ever talk about it. We'd love to talk about politics, but that's something different. We don't like to talk about the government, you know, the thing that we are hiring the politicians to run on our behalf. Right. And you go into it to, like, actually show how it works, which is interesting from a couple perspectives. I mean, you know, we've never met before, but I've been in, I've been in the government two times in my life, hmm. both times to lead a major turnaround when something was completely effed up mm-hmm. once once was when they launched the affordable care act website and it didn't work mm-hmm. president obama and i came in to lead that and then and then just later last last year when when they were going to roll out the vaccines and no one had any vaccines and so i came in to work for president biden to lead that mm-hmm. so um the premise that the government doesn't always work right probably is one that you get a lot of people who would say yeah i kind of agree with that but it's totally fascinating how much people mistake kind of like the politics they see on like CNN or MSNBC for like the functioning of the largest entity in the country that affects all of us. In the world, honestly, the, the United States federal government is by many measures the largest organization of any kind in the world. It's like one of the largest employers, uh, the largest employer in the United States by far. One out of every every 16 people in the country works for it. It's massive. Yeah. And what we found in making this show is the government is so vast that the number of stories you'll find inside of it are essentially infinite. Like you turn over a rock and you will find some incredible way that the government is affecting your life, either for good or for bad. And when it's for bad, the reasons are generally not what you think. They're, they're not ah, some lazy politician, blah, blah, blah. You know, like you normally see people complaining about on CNN, it's for much more complicated, interesting reasons that we can actually learn about and unpack and thereby perhaps one day solve. It's interesting because you've got a essentially, as you just described it and as you have on the show, the the biggest force in the economy and in our lives, sometimes it's hidden and we don't often realize it, as you point out with things like farm subsidies, which, which impact the price of, we pay for food and, 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 and the agriculture industry. But very, very, there's very low trust. There's, there's a new Pew poll out, which says that only 20% of Americans trust the government. And yet you're attempting to fix it through comedy. <laughs> well, I, I'm not attempting to fix it. I'm attempting to help people understand it so that we can all work to fix it together. Uh, but, you know, one of the problems with a poll like that is the question of do you trust the government is far too broad uh, because the fact is the government is so large and there are so many different agencies that do so many different things. It's not really sensible to give an answer to that question. And so what we found is there are agencies, departments, and certainly individuals who are doing incredible work and they are doing it 
in good faith and they're doing it only because they know that it needs to be done. Talking about, say, the National Weather Service, right, is one of the crown jewels of the American government that that we have built this incredible uh, agency that monitors weather conditions all across the country. They have 100 weather observation posts. They employ thousands of meteorologists who are constantly monitoring the weather and, you know, using cutting edge meteorology science that they've developed to predict the future of the most powerful weather systems on Earth. And then they give that data for free to everybody. And that, in fact, is where every weather prediction you ever see comes from. You open AccuWeather, you watch the news, you are watching forecasts that originated from the National Weather Service. Um, And I met the folks who work there. And guess what? They just love the weather. (laughs) They love the weather and they love saving lives, you know. And that's why they work there. They could make more money working for the Weather Channel, but they like working for the federal government because they really care about the mission. And the National Weather Service has done that job very effectively. You know, it is top to bottom. It's a wonderful, trustworthy organization. Now, if you take the example of FEMA, do I trust FEMA to come save me if an earthquake hits California? No, I do not. And why is that? It's because structurally FEMA is not a particularly well-structured organization. And so, you know, we need to be able to get past, oh, do we trust the governor or not? And like actually understand what it does and how well each department, each agency is set up to do the thing we want it to do before we can even begin to answer that question. So that's so. What you're saying requires a nuanced understanding, yes, uh, uh, that of the pieces of the government, and yet, and, yet, and I want to get into some of those pieces because I think that's what you do so well in the show. But I, I think we kind of start with this kind of interesting irony, which is that, and you speak to this on the show, which is that anti-government rhetoric, you know, going back to the 1980s, you know, to some extent becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, mm-hmm. and then we get to things like. A pandemic where we say, boy, we really need to trust the government because there's no one else who can solve this problem uh, but us. And they've done things over time that have caused a large percentage of people to say, I'm not going to trust anything they say or do. Yeah. You know, when we were when we were rolling out vaccines, it was pretty clear that there were going to be 30 to 40 percent of people that um, were not only not going to do it, listen to anything we had to say, but we're going to not trust it mm-hmm. because we were saying it coming out of the White House. So you've got this this kind of great irony, and, and maybe it's. Uh, I'm just curious what you learned over the course of doing this, um, which would lead you to see, you know, is that so a problem we see our way through? Like I, like I think Obama, and we'll talk about him in a second. Like I think he has this sort of fundamental core belief that, like underneath it all, people are going to come back to understanding what a good thing government can be and can do. That it's not perfect, but that it can work. Yet it just feels very, um, it feels very outside the reality of kind of people's just surface level, admittedly surface level reaction when they hear the government's going to do something. Well, I, I, I agree and I don't agree with that. Certainly we have had 40 plus years of propaganda, anti-government propaganda of uh, the disembowelment of the government, of the defunding of the government. Um, and we're living, we're living in Reagan's America, right? And Reagan didn't even start that. He was just the, you know, the pinnacle of it um, and, and really set us on this course. But, you know, the thing is, what the government is about and the case that we try to make is it is the sole provider of public goods, that there are certain things that we cannot do individually and that private companies cannot do. And we simply must come together as a society to do them like the National Weather Service. Right. There's no other way to do that. And people understand that on a deep level and they do love it. You know, I dare you find any person in America and bring them to their local public library. 
you know, and ask them how they feel when they walk in the doors of the public library. They love it. Right. Everybody loves the public library. Oh, my God. You can get books for free. They have classes. They've got, you know, it's freely available to everybody, et cetera, et cetera. So people know what that feels like. And we can tap into that in order to, you know, uh, bring back their vision of what else we might do. And that's what we seek to do on this show. One, one of the aims of the show is to show people here is how the government has solved our biggest problems in the past. Uh, diseased meat was killing people. We sent food inspectors into every meat plant in America, and they're still there today. And that's why meat doesn't kill you dead anymore, right? Bank failures used to m wipe out your money from the bank. We forced all the banks to put money into a big insurance pot called the FDIC. And now, when a bank fails, the FDIC swoops in and takes over the bank silently, and your money is safe in the bank. These are big measures mm -hmm. that we put in place to to solve problems and they're still in place today they're incredibly successful yeah. and so trying to remind people of those successes is uh, really important but that none of that is a discount the sense of failure and the sense of lack that people have um, of government in their lives so just to give an example we went down to uh, we did an episode on disease and the question look our, our writers room uh, was in session for a week when the shutdown happened and we wrote the rest of the thing over zoom or the rest of the show. And so, you know, we, we initially had a bunch of different ideas for our episodes and suddenly we were like, hold on a second. We need to talk about how the government is failing on COVID-19. We all feel this lack, right? We actually have a clip from that. If you want us to play it. Yeah, please go ahead. Why don't we play that clip and then we can, and then you can comment on it. Or what about COVID-19? I mean, do you remember what it was like when the pandemic first hit? We were all trapped inside, obsessively refreshing the COVID death count websites and cheering out our windows for frontline workers who didn't even have access to basic protective equipment. Thank you. Who needs a mask when you've got clinging pots to comfort you? Actually, if you were stuck inside, you were lucky because a lot of people, like grocery workers, were out there risking their lives for minimum wage. Do you want your body bag to be paper or plastic? And as I watch the pandemic sweep across the country, killing hundreds of thousands of Americans, I couldn't help but wonder, where the hell was our government? Yeah, I've, oh man, I, it puts me back there right now, just hearing to myself talk about it, you know? Um, we had this real sense of like absence and lack, you know? And, and those of us who understood, hey, the NIH is a terrific organization, right? We're able to, like the NIH is, is uh, one of the other crown jewels of the government as a medical research organization. We're able to say, okay, I can put a little bit of trust there, right? But for the average person who doesn't have that connection, like, yeah, the question is, why should they trust what the government uh, has to tell them about it? But that's not because, in my view, they're paranoid or they're, you know, they have anti-authoritarian personalities or something like that. It's because they haven't felt it in their lives. Mm -hmm. So in this in this episode, we go down to Lowndes County, Alabama, which is one of the extremely poor county, majority black county. Um, outside of Montgomery. And at one time, they had the highest COVID-19 rate in the United States a couple months before we visited them. And in this county, there is one doctor in the entire county. He's, the federal government pays for him to be there because it's a federally, federally qualified health center. Um, and there is one public health department that provides all other public health services in the entire county, right? 
And we talk to these incredibly overworked government workers who are like doing the Lord's work there, right? Trying to keep people safe during COVID-19. Um, but like, <laughs> you know, why, why is the vaccination rate low in Alabama, in that county? Is it because people don't trust the government or is it because, well, hey, we've defunded our public health departments progressively over the last 50 years in this country. And so when the pandemic hits, like, there's nobody to go door to door and knock to, knock on people's doors and say, hey, don't you want to get vaccinated for COVID-19? I know you don't have transportation. I know you're housebound. I know you work so hard. You have so many kids that you can't leave your home. But here we are. We're going to explain it to you patiently and slowly. They didn't have that capacity there because we've defunded that department and because people there haven't had the experience of you know being cared for in the same way that uh, they should. And... So that to me is is the failure, right? Is that we're not going out to people and uh, bringing them what they need. And if we were, then we would see a different response from them. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the point you make very effectively about the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Which is that you know, if you want government to be ineffective, call it ineffective, tell people don't trust it, tell people it's a source of all evil, don't fund things that people need like public health. Yeah. Um, you know, or as, as I think President Trump said, I don't like paying people to do things that, that uh, where they're sitting around doing something where I don't know what they're doing. And you know, it sort of stretches like the point, which is like, yeah, yeah, that's right. You don't know what they're doing because you're not an expert in everything. And by the way, no president is going to be an expert in everything. And so you need a bunch of these things um, around and it's called resiliency. And you pay the price uh, when you don't have them. So, but at the end of it, at the end of it all, people's lesson is, and boy, I wish we would have funded public health more. The people's lesson is, boy, public health really screwed it up because I don't think mm -hmm. unless they've watched your show or found some other um, way of understanding it, you know, it, it just looks like the government couldn't execute on what they were being asked to do. Yeah. And I mean, that's the purpose of the show is to correct the record on that point, you know, um, that look, the we can wag our fingers all we want and say, well, the government screwed it up. Right. But like if we're citizens of a society we who, who you know bear some democratic connection and responsibility to the government well we should say well why did it screw it up and what are the structural issues that caused it to be screwed up right so the cdc had plenty of problems but like we need to ask what those are and investigate them you know and try to correct them uh rather than just like you know say hey someone else should have done a better job Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. And of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out March 27th from Lemonada Media. Hey, listeners. If you haven't heard, you can now show your support for In the Bubble and meet other cool In the Bubble listeners with your very own In the Bubble t-shirt, mug, and baseball cap. Get all three. Head to our merch store at lemonadamedia.com slash shop.
to pick up yours today. Well, look, I think the place where you started this conversation may be the most important question, which is, okay, so let's take, the, let's say you hate the government, or you love the government, put that aside. There's a bunch of things that just won't get done by anybody that isn't looking out for the public interest. So we're not going to put have enough money for kids who have special needs uh, in schools unless somebody goes out and says, hey, we need to put money aside for this. Correct. There's a whole bunch of societal needs that are just going to have to get done one way or the other. And- we talk a lot of the show about about empathy mm-hmm. and kind of institutional lacks of empathy, and how if you haven't been in the if you if you're in the experience been in a position where you you need something out of the ordinary and no one's providing it, you feel it pretty acutely. Yeah. But otherwise, you know, there's a lot of people who feel like, boy, that's just a tax on me for something that I don't get to use, and it's this it's this sort of lack of of kind of cohesion. Um, that causes people to say, well, I don't care about that service. It's for farmers, or I don't care about that service. You know, it's for people who are who are sick or older, and I'm young and healthy. And um, this this sort of, I think there's a lot of the world where people are like, you know, we've got to all pay a little bit so that we all can do a little bit better. And uh, I think there may be parts of this country that that don't quite believe that as much as we'd like them to. I think that's true. Uh, I think it rarely takes the form of people. I mean, you'll hear, you know, pundits on right wing talk radio be like, why should my money go to the poor and lazy? That is something that some people believe. But that's that's an extreme viewpoint. Most people just don't think about the fact that it needs to be done, you know. And if you point out to them, hey, can we all agree that this is a need? Yes. Uh did you realize that no one else will provide this need unless we pool our money together and do it? They'll generally be for it. And a, a big part of the show is pointing out to them places in which we are doing that. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and ways in which we're failing and just trying to nudge people towards that conclusion that, you know, there are certain things that we cannot do alone. We can only do together. And uh, that's not the only theme of the show. We also, you know, talk about uh, ways in which the, the government's, duty to do to provide for uh the folks who cannot be provided for any other way is perverted and corrupted by you know money people pulling the money spigot over towards themselves away from uh, the people where it's needed and so another theme is we have to be eternally vigilant to make sure that doesn't happen you know uh to make sure that the uh the rich and powerful aren't uh, give an example of that you give you gave some examples when it came to sort of agricultural subsidies i don't know if that's your favorite one but Give an example. Oh, I got so many. It. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so, one, so you mentioned agricultural subsidies. So, uh, the pattern with agricultural subsidies in this in this country is that they were established uh, during the Dust Bowl era in order to uh, help out the American public because at that time uh, half of Americans lived on farms. So, you know, farm aid was American aid to the American people, uh, and we subsidized the production of certain crops: uh, wheat, rice, and corn, bulk grains like that. Um, today we are basically subsidizing the production of the same grains, except that now farms, you know, most people don't live on farms, right? A vanishingly small number of Americans do. And the people who actually own the farms is largely large agribusiness concerns. You know, the day of the family farmer is long gone. And if you see it on your produce, it's likely by family farm. They mean my billionaire family owns this billion dollar farm. 
So now all of our subsidies are going to these large agribusiness concerns and they're subsidizing the production of grains that aren't the ones that are the healthy food, you know, the healthy fruits and vegetables that are in short supply and that are too expensive for most people. Instead, we're subsidizing the bulk grains that are turned into highly processed foods. Um, And, you know, that's a very difficult system to change. We've been stuck with it for a long time, um, but it has uh, it has some results that we like, which are that it generally keeps food prices down. That's one of the reasons the government does it. But. It keeps the wrong food prices down, you know, and uh, the you know, the those agribusiness concerns are very powerful in the states uh, where, uh, you know, of the senators who are voting for the farm bill every uh, every couple of years. So uh, that's one example. Another is that the National Weather Service, which I talked about, um, incredible public good. Uh, AccuWeather, a company that is built on the National Weather Service's fire hose of data, they get access to it the same way we do. You can go to weather.gov, get all the data for free. AccuWeather can get it as well, right? But AccuWeather doesn't like that weather.gov is competition for them. They'd rather sell you the data that the weather service is providing to them for free. So they have worked for years to try to limit the weather service's ability to communicate with the public. Mm. So for instance, they blocked the weather service from developing a free public app, which would have been incredibly useful the weather service mm. provides, you know, extreme weather notifications and, you know, some of the best if you if you don't subscribe to your you know local weather service office Twitter feed, you absolutely should because it's the best source of clear up to the minute weather info in your area. That's another example. And, and maybe the best one is that, you know, after uh, after the pandemic shutdown. Uh, suddenly, you know, trillions of dollars disappear from the economy. Poof, because we're all stuck at home. Not talking about the the medical part of it. It's literally just the shutdown, right? right? So the government says, well, we need to flood the economy with cash because otherwise things are going to grind to a halt and, you know, people aren't going to be able to eat. So they, you know, create all of this money out of thin air in order to do it. And they flood the economy with it and they save capitalism, right? And it was largely very successful, except that the money didn't make it into the hands of the people who needed it the most. So we Profile, for instance, um, you know these these uh, two women who run a childcare uh, in Los Angeles, Claudia and Sandra, and it, it, they actually do infant care, uh, you know, daycare for for folks who you know in that part of LA need to go to work. People who work in hospitals, people who work in supermarkets, you know, they were take caring, taking care of those people's kids. They got a total of six thousand dollars in PPP loans. It wasn't even a month's salary for them. Right. Um, Meanwhile, you know, big restaurant chains get millions in PPP loans. Hell, I work in the entertainment industry and my production company got a bigger PPP loan than Sandra did, despite the fact that we're far less essential than she is. You know, and and this is like a fundamental. You're pretty essential. (laughs) I I like what I do. Right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the, the reason is because I get you. And it's because the rich get richer, right? It's because if you're a bigger company, you have a better accountant, you have a bigger bank, you have a bigger lawyer, you have better access to those funds. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about, the the tilted playing field. How much of the problem do you think comes down to things like the influence of money and lobbying and access to keep the government making decisions that, that disadvantage people at the bottom of the food chain how much of that is what is, or, or are there other perversions? You mentioned, you know, two senators from every rural state. Yeah. You know, what are the things that stood out to you as really the biggest things that have to change in order to make the government work better? I mean, I think we have this 
we have this desire to say, ah, there's too much money in politics. We need to like pass a campaign finance bill, kick the lobbyists out, et cetera. Right. We, we like to find these one or two mm-hmm. blame points. Yep. To me, it's that that's how our entire society works. Our entire look, uh, the rich get richer is a law of the universe. If you have more, then you have more influence and you have more power and you can bring more to yourself. Right. That is just the way the world works. And the government is one of the only forces that can push back against it by saying, no, 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 we're not going to distribute things according to who's loudest and according to who has the most influence. We're going to do it evenly. We're going to give it to everybody, right? And you can see government programs fighting to do that. The public library is a great example, right? You know, the public library is a society saying, God, everybody needs access to information. We're going to give it to anyone. Everyone is welcome here. You know, public transit at its best is that's what it is too. Um, But there's always that other force pulling it against it saying, you know, hey, those of us who have more want more. And it's not just a big corporation and it's not just lobbyists. It's also affluent white homeowners are the largest political class. So we tend to, uh, we're the largest, loudest, most donating, most likely to vote political class. So we tend to be able to get policy that benefits us like the mortgage interest deduction, right? Rather than policies that benefit poor renters, you know, and and this is stuff, this is baked into society. And so we just need to be fighting against it root and branch at every level all the time. And the, the fight will never be over. Yeah, and look, the, the the two biggest subsidies that we never talk about are the home interest deduction, which largely supports white people in the suburbs, and $250 billion a year in health benefits for large employers, mm-hmm. um, which also benefits people who are, who are full-time salaried, uh, largely uh, disproportionately white. But I'll tell you, look, I ran for President Obama the biggest part of the federal budget, which is a $1 trillion agency called Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Mm-hmm. We had... Medicare and Medicaid, and every year we would put out rules saying this is how we're going to pay for, we're going to reimburse hospitals or doctors for or, or home care agencies or nursing homes for medical care of people in Medicare and Medicaid. And as soon as we would put out a notice which of, of, a, of a rulemaking, like clockwork, the hospitals, the insurance companies, the pharmaceutical companies um, had well-organized campaigns letter writing campaigns, visiting us, et cetera, et cetera. So what I had to do was ask the staff that was working on this to say, my only requirement is that you get equal input from people who don't have access to you. So for every time you hear from a hospital, there you go. I need you to hear from an equal number of patient advocacy organizations. And that was difficult for them mm-hmm. because there is so, there are people who have offices in Washington blocks, literally blocks from where our offices were, whose entire purpose was to influence us. Yeah. And so, and, and they would do it, they do it more subtly than people think, right? They, mm-hmm. they come and educate and inform. But essentially, when they're unhappy, they can unleash the hounds. Yeah. So I, I guess I want to just push on the, how, how to get the government to be um, at least not as guilty as everybody else in making society work this way. Yeah, I mean... Uh, look, it, it's it, like I said, it's just something that we need to push against at every level at all times. And, you know, you, sounded, show, you just sounded you sounded a little bit dismissive of the idea of, of lobbying reform. That's why I asked, because ah, you, no, 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 no. I, I'm not dismissive of the specific idea of lobbying reform um, like that is that those are great reforms that we could make. Those aren't going to solve the problem. OK. And, and what I that. like to yeah. what, what I like to point out is people like to blame 
only big corporations or they like see, to blame yeah. only lobbyists. Agreed. It's also like, look, if you live in a million dollar home in the suburbs, right. And you are cranky about a low, you know, a lower income housing development being put in your area. Like that is also one of these biases of the rich get richer, the more get more attention. And that's something that we are often, uh, you know, not interested in acknowledging. See the same pattern in criminal justice reform, you know, uh, any other, uh, any of these other issues. You, you, you do ruin everything, Adam. <laughs> Uh, another good example is, um, you know, we talk about FEMA and, uh, you know, we talk about the difference between the response to Hurricane Harvey and the response to Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, Texas versus Puerto Rico in the same year. Um, and Puerto Rico got, you, you know, we're, we're, the federal government is able to fly a plane through a hurricane in order to figure out where the hurricane is going, but it can't bring bottled water to people in Puerto Rico. Why? Well, it probably has something to do with the fact that Texas has a couple of really powerful senators on FEMA's oversight committee. Puerto Rico has no representation in Congress. You know, so that is another example of this that has nothing to do with lobbying, right? It's just like we as a nation have been like, eh, that part of the country doesn't count, either psychically, culturally, or mm -hmm. structurally. They have no structural power. Um, and so some of that is just yeah. baked into like the structure of the Senate, right? Why, what's the problem with farm subsidies? It's the overwhelming power that rural areas have versus urban areas, et cetera, et cetera. These things are everywhere. Last Day is a show about the moments that change us. I just don't think I will ever get used to this. I'm Stephanie Whittles-Wax, and I have had one of these moments. We all have. So let's unpack the chaos that is our human existence together. I don't believe things happen for a reason. I don't believe the universe has a plan. Each week, I sit down with a new guest to explore happy, sad stories of transformation. It's leaning far, far into the pain. That's what it is. Listen to Last Day wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Lemonada listeners, we want to hear from you. You know we love our sponsors for a ton of reasons, but one of the main ones is that they help us keep the lights on. And there's a really easy way that you can help us draw new advertisers and hear ads for things you're most interested in. Filling out our quick anonymous survey at lemonadamedia.com survey. By just answering a few questions, you can help us find new brands to connect with and also share feedback about show content you'd like to see across the network. And to sweeten the deal, once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. I promise the survey is short and sweet and will help us play ads you don't want to skip and also keep bringing you content you love. Just go to lemonadamedia.com slash survey. So you went at this project with a guy named, I've been looking for his name, I think his name is President Obama. Yeah, Barry. Oh, yeah, Barry. Oh, okay, got it. Um, <laughs> I do have a clip of, of you and of President Obama Oh yeah, um, uh, getting together. Maybe, maybe this will help people understand how it worked a little bit. Adam, what's on your mind? Well, former President Obama, if You know, most people just say president. <laughs> well, that's inaccurate. It's not your job anymore. You know, I was promoted at the supermarket junior year of high school, but I'm not making people call me shift manager Adam Conover for the rest of my life. <laughs> that would be crazy. I don't want our fact checkers on my ass, so I'm going to have to stick with former president. Or do you prefer FAPOTUS? Anytime you want to get to the point, it's fine by me. 
For POTUS Obama, you're producing the show. People are going to think it's pro-government propaganda. Well, this show's not about me. The goal of the show is to show people what our government actually does and to introduce them to the Americans who actually do the work. But the government doesn't always work well. In fact, sometimes it does harm. I don't want to make a show about how the government works. I want to know if it works and for whom. Do you think I can deduct this as a home office? <laughs> Very proud of that scene. There's uh, some really nice, some really nice writing there from our team. But by, by the way, he's 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 a funny guy. I mean, his comic timing is pretty freaking good. And it is infuriating to me as a comedian who spent you know ten years working in basements in New York City for free to try to get good at comedy. To have this motherfucker come in while he was running the free world somehow became as funny as any of us. Like, give me a break. Like, it's very. I have a lot of professional annoyance about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's it's sickening. Uh, so, um, yeah, the what the, what that scene serves to dramatize is that. One thing that was really clear to me when we started making the show was the death of this show will be if it has seen as an Obama administration or, or you know, machine mouthpiece. And so I told Higher Ground, I need editorial independence on the show. I need to be able to come up with my own topics and investigate them how I see fit. And they granted me that. And then we did this scene in order to make that transparent to the audience, that that's our relationship on the show. And that is, in fact, our relationship. I mean, we do plenty of topics on the show that, you know, uh, I don't think Barack Obama would have chosen to do the segment we do on unmanned drone strikes or on, you know, our mentions of the Affordable Care Act or, you know, the neoliberal turn, uh, stuff like that. So you you thought, hey, I want to bring a comic touch to this, yeah, in part because it's who you are and how you've communicated. the The thing that uh, I find interesting is this idea of using humor to educate people, and I want to just mm-hmm. dig into that for for, for a little bit yeah. because, you know, to some extent, like there are a lot of people who get a lot more of their news and information from places like beginning with John Stewart, mm-hmm. um, John Oliver, a, a, who covered legitimately serious, serious topics with facts and, you know, with a brand of humor. Now that, that can get carried in a lot of directions, some of which um, I'm sure are not as good, but, but the, that, that notion and, and that the notion that you could take, um, I'm even go back to like schoolhouse rock when, when, when I was a mm-hmm. kid, which is yeah. probably before your time, but you know what it is, or or other kinds of of people who are sort of trying to pre- present information in new ways. Do you think that works? I mean, if you, in in, the, in this kind of kind of topic, I mean, that the, as, as as two of the funniest people in America, I, I kind of want to know. <laughs> Look, if I didn't think it worked, I wouldn't be doing it. You know, I, I it's it's what I've built my career around, uh, and, and I believe in it very deeply. So you're trying to make people laugh or educate people or both. Do I try to make people laugh or educate people or both? Both. Yeah. Uh, a- absolutely. I think that they are united in their purpose. I think they're the same thing. You know, I think that uh, something is educational when it is entertaining. If you think about your favorite teacher in school, you know, it wasn't mm-hmm. the teacher who like recited the facts the best. It was the one who made history come alive to you. Right. Um, it was the one who blew your mind with the information. Uh, and 
you know, comedy conveys ideas. Uh, a lot of comics have a, I think, stupider point of view on it where they're like, it's just jokes. None of it matters. There are some jokes that work that way. Most jokes don't work that way. Most jokes convey an idea. They have a truth behind them. They have a truth value behind them. A lot of times when people are, quote, offended by a joke, they're not really offended. They disagree with it. Like they find it to be a false premise, for instance. Um, and so in my experience, making people laugh is one of the best ways to teach them things. That's why when I had the opportunity, Hey, you want to do something about the government? Absolutely. That's going to be full of fascinating stories and it's important. And there's people don't know about it and they want to know, and I can, I can educate them. on what, it. What do people tell you more often though, that when they, and which do you like hearing more often when someone comes to you and says, man, I watched your thing and I learned a ton or man, I watched your thing and you're hilarious. Like which, <laughs> which, which did you rather hear? That is a really good question because I really want to take it seriously. Which would I rather hear? The comic in me wants to hear your hilarious first because that's what I've been working on so hard. And, mm -hmm. you know, as a comic, you don't want to be the kind of comic comic where people applaud instead of laughing. That's the death. Right. Uh, and so making sure that people are always laughing, making sure that the comedy is always a 10 out of 10 or as close as I can get to it is really, really important to me. Uh, what I try to do, though, is have the comedy always serve the idea that we're getting across. There's a quote from George Carlin from the book that he wrote just before he died uh, that I, I, I really love, and I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but uh, what he says is that, you know, when people are laughing, they're most truly themselves. That's when their minds are open. Um, and you can plant a little seed at that moment, and later on it'll grow. And I find that to be very true. You're probably a prisoner of the same thing that a lot of us are prisoner of nowadays, which is the just completely atomized and bifurcated media. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, the, the, the sort of common experience... Uh, you know, being able to be on, you know, ABC primetime in 1983, right, doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And so, and because we have so many choices and we select so much. And so I wonder when you put together a show like this and you think about the impact that it's having, and I will agree, making people laugh, that is a good place to start uh, for a lot of reasons. But do you thought, you know what, it's an Obama show, it's on Netflix. I really would love more conservative people to sort of see it and understand government, but how do I make that happen? Do you feel like you're like did somehow that that's a hard world to get out of? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're all prisoners of the media ecosystem that we're in, you know? So yeah, I wish I were doing this show on ABC in 1975 and there were only three or four channels and you know, uh, that's, that's all that people had to watch. Right. And I was getting a third of the audience, no matter what I did, but instead I'm on Netflix where I'm competing with every other show on Netflix, <laughs> which we we reference at the beginning of the show. We say, hey, you could what you're watching this. You could be watching Food Fails on Nailed It. Right. Um, that's that's one of the features of the media ecosystem, media ecosystem that I just live in. You know, I've often felt that I have in my career jumped from sinking ship to sinking ship because I you know, my first big break was working at the co comedy website College Humor. Within four years of me getting a job there, comedy websites no longer existed. Comedy websites that produced its, produced sketch comedy video, right? Then I was on basic cable, making Adam Ruins Everything for True TV. That ship starts sinking. Cable television started losing 10% of its audience every single year. Mm. Then I jumped to Netflix. My show comes out two weeks after Netflix posts the first subscriber loss in its history. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, you, you know, I, I have no control over that. So Adam and ruins everything. I guess I do. I guess I really yeah. do. In fact, I really do ruin everything. So I have no control over that. And I have no control over 
you know, the portions of the audience who are, have been so indoctrinated by some other message that their minds are closed to what I try to say, you know, Mm -hmm. all I can do is go as wide as I possibly can, you know, try to open the funnel as far as I possibly can and try to engage people in another way. So one of my deep beliefs is that people are not, you know, they're not fundamentally liberal or conservative in their entire being and outlook. You know, some people like they've got a little bit more of a reactionary personality. Some people have a little bit more of a, you know, exploratory progressive personality. Right. But people are people are people. And my job as a comedian is to interface with people. Right. And if people have been radicalized about abortion or about guns by Fox News. Right. Those are those are pretty small parts of American discourse. And I can just talk about other shit. You know, I can say like, hey, don't you want to know where your weather predictions come from? And I'm not running into that for a little bit, you know, and I can like talk to them for a little bit while longer. I can make them laugh. Uh, they can see that I'm that I'm working with integrity, that I'm being honest. You know, I get a lot of conservatives saying, you know, hey, I don't agree with you about everything, but I can tell I like how you do it. You know what I mean? Mm. Like you're you're OK. You know, that's good to hear. And, and that's and look, I don't get that from everybody, but that's I'll take it. You know what I mean? Hey, it beats a death threat. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it absolutely does. But I, I would say that, and I'm, I'm, I'm now getting inside Obama's head, uh, which is a dangerous thing to do because he's, he's way too smart. But you know, I think one of his goals is to fight misinformation, fight misinformation with real information, attractively mm-hmm. packaged. Yeah. Um, and I think. Part of the purpose of his production company, clearly part of what I could see you doing. And you look, I, I would encourage anybody who hasn't watched the G word. Um, first of all, time goes by quickly when you're watching it because there's so much stuff and it's happening fast and it's interesting. But you just learn a ton of stuff. And even if you're someone like me who thinks they know more than they do, because I'm someone who probably thinks they know more than they do, um, you're like, "Well, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Uh, that's interesting." And uh, I mean, for, despite what you say about Netflix having a little bit of a bump, uh, you know, there is no big, better, bigger platform Absolutely. to be on. And there's nobody other than, you know, besides President Obama, right? There, there, there are worse people uh, to <laughs> collaborate with. So this is very yeah. exciting, uh, Adam. And it's something you didn't ruin. <laughs> I I can't tell you how much I appreciate the those kind of words about it. I mean, we put three years of work into this show, into researching the hell out of it. Join, you know, f- w- w- it took years of work to get ourselves into some of the field pieces that we go report on. You know, that I go inside a Cargill meat processing facility to meet USDA inspectors it was like a years long process. Editing it, doing the visual effects, like it, it was, you know, truly a really long term labor of love just to make six episodes. And the fact that, you know, people are seeing it and then it's having an impact on people is uh, is really, really important to me. So, uh, you know, I, I, I do this stuff because, look, it's a nice way to make a paycheck, but but I really care about it. And so does everybody who, who works on this show, like spreading good information using comedy is you know, what I was put here to do. So I'm, I'm really proud to be able to do it. This has been really fun. I should let you go, but it was really fun having you on. I really appreciate you going in the bubble and not ruining it for that matter. And I can't thank you enough for, for your kind words and, and for really watching and thoughtfully engaging with the show. It, it, it means the world to me and to everyone who works on it. So thank you so much.
Thank you, Adam, for that engaging conversation. I've got our executive producer, Kyle, here. Kyle, how are you doing? I'm great, Andy. That was a great show. I was I learned a lot from Adam. It was a great call. And, you know, I think you guys have been finding some amazing guests. You know, the new team has been here for a few months now. And uh, I think it's really, you guys have really helped transform the show in an amazing way. All all, all of you guys. So I'm, I'm so appreciative. It's been an honor and a privilege to work with you and to go through uh, and make some great uh, podcasts for people to listen to. It's really been an awesome experience, I know, for all of us, too. So if people are new to the show and they've just started tuning in and you were going to tell them to go back and find a show to listen to to really get a sense of what In the Bubble is like, what are one or two of the shows you might recommend that people start with? Yeah, I mean, there's so many good ones to go back to. You know, as a Minnesota guy, obviously, I'm going to choose Al Franken, the former senator. He was on back in June at the beginning of the month. Or I know people are really wondering about monkeypox, and we're going to talk about that again in a couple weeks, I think. But you could go back to Anne Romani, who was on in May, and everything she told us then was right. We're, you know, we, we try to get ahead of things and let you know what's coming around the corner. I think she gave us a great heads up. She told us what we needed to know and how to, you know, what to keep our eye on. So that's a great episode. Our episode on extremism, far-right extremism, and of course, the one I think that'll stick with us was the uh, Roe v. Wade decision and the show we did right after that. So we've had really some great shows you could go back, and they're all timeless with great information. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to me how often people go back and play the old episodes and how relevant they are. And and oftentimes you're right. I mean, the we try to get ahead of the curve and tell people what's coming or when people are really worried about something um, to try to um, assuage those with facts. And I think that those are some good choices. I think a lot of people come to the show because they get the latest of what's happening with the pandemic, but then they find that there's a lot of other stuff in the world that they're worried about. I know there's another podcast. I, I think there are other podcasts out in the world, if I'm not mistaken, um, <laughs> that you wanted to also tell a little bit about. Yeah, I know, like, for me, when I need a little break from the news, I listen to Add to Cart, Andy, and I wanted to tell you about it this week. I've been listening to it a lot lately. Suchin and Cool Up, they just crack me up. It's like two best friends who have known each other forever, and you just, like, join right in on their friendship as soon as you listen to it. But it's... uh it's Add to Cart because it's a shopping show, and they give you great tips on what they're buying this week. I got some nice skincare stuff for my wife that she really loved, and uh, that won me some points at home. And it's about body positivity. They talk about being first-generation immigrants, and uh, it's just a really great show. So if you need a little break from the news, I like to listen to Add to Cart, and I think uh, our listeners would really enjoy it. So I suggest they try that in their podcast player. Anywhere you can download this show, you can download Add to Cart. Yeah, I find myself increasingly like, um, maybe it's because we're doing this podcast, but like when I have time to kill, going on a walk, getting on an airplane, rather than listening to music, I increasingly download interesting podcasts. And there's like all kinds of fascinating perspectives and you're getting in someone's head and I'm certainly appreciating that more. And that's a good one. Well, thanks for highlighting that. And, you know, speaking of which, let me just talk a little bit. We've got some really good ones coming up that we've arranged uh, Jamie Raskin's going to be coming up soon. He's, of course, the January 6th committee member. Uh, Tony Fauci, who is uh, going to talk about what to expect with vaccines in the fall. Mark Leibovich, the, the great journalist um, who, who wrote a very interesting book called Thank You for Your Servitude <laughs> about all of the people around Donald Trump and 
and their behavior and what he's watching the Republican Party. Fascinating. I think that show will be great. It's on, on Monday. And then, uh, of course, Friday, we got our Friday Conversations. And this one coming up is on something that maybe, uh, in addition to skincare, you should also be talking to your wife about, which is male contraception. Ha <laughs> ha uh, We've aged out of that demo, but uh, it'll be very uh, useful for other people. I, You know, talk about a thing we're looking around the corner on. People want to know, you know, there's a lot of talk about male responsibility on this issue. And uh, I thought it was a really fascinating conversation. I'm looking forward to people hearing it. I couldn't believe that there are two and a half million unplanned pregnancies in the U.S. every year, about half of which I believe the statistics show end up in abortion because you know, people just are in situations in life where they're not ready and under really challenging circumstances. So I think Roe v. Wade has made that a topic to focus on to even a greater extent, given really unfair burden being created on women. But the guests have a really powerful way of talking about it that honestly stretched my thinking. Uh, so anyway, we'll be talking to you on Friday. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I'm so glad to have you as an In the Bubble listener. Thank you for listening to In the Bubble. We're a production of Lemonada Media. Catherine Barnes, Jackie Harris, and Cal Sheely produce our show, and they're great. Our mix is by Noah Smith and James Barber, and they're great too. Steve Nelson is the Vice President of Weekly Content, and he's okay too. And of course, the ultimate bosses, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and Stephanie Whittleswax, the executive produced the show, and we love them dearly. Our theme was composed by Dan Millad and Oliver Hill with additional music by Ivan Kuryev. You can find out more about our show on social media at Lemonada Media, where you can also get a transcript of the show, and you can find me at AceLavit on Twitter. If you like what you heard today, why don't you tell your friends to listen as well and get them to write a review. Thanks so much. Talk to you next time. Last Day from Lemonada Media explores the moments that change us. Those times where you look back and say, whoa, one day I was myself and the next I wasn't. I'm Stephanie Whittleswax, and I have seen time and time again how sharing these stories can change lives. So do you have a moment in your life that changed you fundamentally and forever? What happened? How did you move through it? And how did you eventually start again? If you'd like to share your story, go to bit.ly slash lastdaystories, B-I-T slash lastdaystories. We can't wait to hear from you. Hey, friends, it's Megan Trainer And her big bro, Ryan Trainer And her husband, Daryl Sabara. Each week on our podcast, Working On It, we share behind-the-scenes stories and bring you into our hilarious and heartfelt conversations, and sometimes with amazing guests. We tackle everything from navigating Hollywood to mental health to Megan becoming a mother, Daryl becoming a father, and so much more. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of our lives and leave no detail behind. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. Listen to new episodes out every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts.